Well, I don't, I don't have any idea, uh, comments that Paul's going to have today about uh, everything that happened this week. So um, I, I don't know that I have anything to add to what you've probably read and heard for days now. So I, uh, I just think that for the, the churches who have either said, well, you guys are just crying wolf or you guys are just off in the left field somewhere. Well, at least we're vindicated for that, aren't we? We didn't want to be right, but uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. Be very, very careful what you believe about what's on the internet. There's every story you can possibly imagine from um, Trump's going to set up uh, his uh, administration on Mars to you just name it. So don't don't believe everything you read. I don't know what's true. Some of you have asked me today already. I don't know what's true. Uh, I've been hearing stories from a couple of days after the election in November that this was a year-long plan sting and that Trump was giving them enough rope so they could get out there and hang themselves and that there were going to be massive arrests in the next few days. Well, it's two months later and there haven't been massive arrests. I I don't know whether that's true or not. It appears to me that it's not. Why people would go on radio programs and when they're being videoed on top of it and tell stories that they know in their hearts aren't true when they're telling them, I just can't imagine. I mean, it, it just destroys your your credibility and your reputation. Uh, uh, General McElhaney has been saying all kinds of stuff. I, I don't know what's true. We all wish or hope that there's going to be a positive resolution to things, but who knows? Um, I, so just, just be careful about what you believe and hear. Uh, there is a lot of massive uh, censorship going on uh, with the uh, social network platforms. Uh, sadly, they're all owned and operated by leftists. We conservatives have just sat on our hands for decades and have just done nothing. We've not created any kind of conservative platforms, and now... Uh, you know, uh, things like Parler are available, but they have to run on these other platforms and search engines, and they're shutting them down too. So I, I figure if they can censor the President of the United States, they can censor you and me. So um, it's a little bit difficult right now not to get somewhat paranoid. Um, it's also a little bit difficult right now to not kind of censor yourself. Don't start doing that. Don't start censoring your opinion. Uh, don't start censoring your beliefs and your stand. Uh, they may very well block you or censor you, but you were you before Facebook ever came along, and you were you before you ever knew how to tweet, and you know you were you before there ever was Google. And I just trust that in time, people are going to get enough, and something will happen. Uh, that ought to happen. I don't know what that is. Uh, I know that it's uh, very scary times for all of us. Uh, if it's not scary, it's certainly bewildering. You know, you just kind of stand here and scratch your head thinking, what in the world and how far are these people going to go? Well, I think how far these people are going to go is dependent on two things. Number one, history. You know how far they'll go if they're allowed to go. And secondly, just how much we're willing to take. And, and I don't really know what that even means. Because, you know, when you talk about, well, how much are you going to take? Well, then what are you going to do if you don't want to take it? 
Well, you can't just load up your AR and just walk down the street and start shooting people uh, unless it's Paul Street and you can take a few shots at him if you'd like. But, um, but I mean, you know, honestly, I mean, what do you do? Uh, I think uh, we just have to obviously pray. That certainly is never a wrong thing to do. But don't stop being who you are. Don't start censoring yourself. Don't start apologizing for your views. If anything, you need to be more bold than you've ever been. In my opinion, uh, you just do. And, uh, you know, I figure that if people like churches and pastors and other believers would censor themselves already since last March, and we would, we would buckle under, under the kind of pressure that's been brought to us to this point, well, there's no way that we would stand up and fight for our liberties. Good grief. I mean, you know, if we we won't even speak out, I doubt that we'll stand up. So I think what we all need to be doing, if, 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 if there's anything that we can do, is number one, be shoring up what you really do believe and what you're really willing to do. And, and when I say do, I don't necessarily mean we need to launch some kind of, you know, armed, uh, because, I, I, like I said, I don't know where you're going to go, what you're going to aim at. Uh, you know, there was a, a militia group that I was visiting with on, uh, I, it was Thursday, and I was only visiting with the gentleman who I think probably is a part of it, but he's far more level-headed, and I talked them down off the ledge. Well, I say I. I wasn't the only one, but they were going to mobilize and go down and occupy the state capitol. And I said, for what purpose? I mean, granted, conservatives should have occupied the Capitol a long time ago, but through a legislative legal means, I said, so let's just say that you go down to the Capitol and you take it. And if there's gunfire, you win. Well, what do you do then? I mean, what does that prove? Well, we'll be making a statement. I said, well, okay, I guess that would make a statement, but that's going to play right into the hands of the left media, they're going to spin it. You know what they've done with what happened in Washington. They're going to spin that every way, and they're not going to uh, report that some of these people were Antifa and BLM folks that have been stirring up trouble for months now. They're not going to report any of that stuff, and they're going to immediately blame it on conservatives. And so eventually I think we were successful in uh, in talking them off the ledge because that that just... You know, I told him, I said, look, there may come a time, regrettably, when we will have to load up our firearms, but I don't think it's today. And when it's the right time, I'll be right there with you if that's what we have to do, but we we better have a better plan than this. Uh, One of the things I think that we can learn from our own history is that 1776 and the Declaration of Independence and the document itself, remember the document simply says what they were doing. They were declaring their independence, and so the Declaration of Independence is simply like the marriage license. It's it's the legal document that says this is what we're we're doing. Didn't just come out of thin air. Those people have been planning and organizing for years. I would argue maybe a decade or longer. And so they had committees of safety. Their job was to prepare for war if it came to procure weaponry. Uh, I know that sounds, you know, volatile and materialistic in our day, but uh, there's actually 
you know, I, I, I have this museum that we travel around with, and so I'm always, I'm interested in, in relics and that kind of thing. And so there, you, can, you can find uh, flintlock muskets for sale that were, were procured by committees of safety of different uh, colonies. Uh, so they had been, they had been preparing, uh, you know, I mean, remember the reason that the British went through Lexington is they were on their way to Concord. They only stop at Lexington because Pastor Jonas Clark and Deacon John Parker and about 70 or 77 Minutemen were out there in the meeting house yard, which would, what we'd call the churchyard. Remember, in, in those days, the meeting house was often the, the, the church, the city hall, everything happened in the same structure. But it was Jonas Clark's church, and they were all standing out there in what today is called Lexington Green, but in those days you'd call it the churchyard or the city square, and they were standing out there, and so the road, if you know anything about Lexington, the road comes right in and, and looks like you'd just, if you were in a car, you'd drive right into Jonas Clark's church. Now, the church is no longer there, but there is a granite pulpit monument where the church stood, where the meeting house was. Most people miss it because it's kind of uh, uh, hidden by the the statue of John Parker, which most people think is the Minuteman statue, and that's not the Minuteman statue. The Minuteman statue is at Concord by the Old North Bridge. But there's John Parker standing there. Well, the granite monument, it's, it's in the shape of a pulpit, and it has etched in it, chiseled in it, the names of men who pastored that church. Of course, Jonas Clark's one of them, but John Hancock's grandfather was, was one of the pastors of that church. So they're all standing there with their muskets, and I don't think that they intended to fire at the British because there were some seven to 800 British soldiers and there's about 77. So you do the math, they're outnumbered at least 10 to one. That would have been suicide. Unfortunately, the commander of the British soldiers, about a quarter of a mile before they got to Jones Clark's church, stopped the soldiers and told them to charge their muskets, which is load, lock and load. Well, you know that the Lexington men heard all of that. I mean, all those ramrods going down and hammers being, all that stuff. So they heard the commands and all. But that was not the, the vantage point. The reason why the British went through Lexington is because they were going to conquer to seize the ammunition and the weapons. That's what they were going to do. And they, they, they run into a snag at Lexington because they didn't anticipate Jonas Clark and the Lexington men there. And so all this stuff happens. Now, have you ever thought about, if you know this history at all, from the morning of the 19th, this is April the 19th, 1775, from the morning, that's when Lexington occurs, until the afternoon, it's when the British get on over to Concord, that when the British are defeated, so to speak, at the Old North Bridge, which was the primary clash at Concord, because the Continental Militia had gotten word of what was going on. You remember Paul Revere was not alone. There was a circle of what we'd call spies, and their job was to keep everybody informed, and that's why he was riding out across the countryside. He wasn't the only one who was doing that. So you've got the Continental Militia standing on Barrett Hill. The reason it's called Barrett Hill, it overlooks the Old North Bridge because that's where Colonel James Barrett lived. I actually have a musket that was made by his nephew, Samuel Barrett, who was a deacon of the church in Concord. And it was, uh, the musket ended up being carried by Jeremiah Kimball from New Hampshire. Anyway, they're standing up on the hill. Well, they'd heard. 
So they're all standing there, and preacher William Emerson, who lived by the old North Bridge, his grandson was Ralph Waldo Emerson. He wrote the famous Concord Hymn. Talks about the shot heard around the world. See all how this is all connected to the church? So you got William Emerson, Pastor William Emerson up there, and he's the one encouraging the militia that if they're going to die, might as well die here. Well, they, they go down and fight the British at the old North Bridge. The British fold up. But when they start marching back to Boston, now... The road that today is called Battle Road, it's not the highway that's there now. The old road was back over just a little bit, and they've preserved a portion of it. And if you go there today, you can walk the old road. Lining the road on both sides are these Minutemen groups, many of them led by pastors. And even if the pastors aren't leading them, they and their men are there as part of these militia groups. And they fight a running battle with the British down that road and literally wipe out the original force that had gone through Lexington that morning. And so the British sent another thousand reinforcements. And that's how the British saved the day and got the rest of those men back to Boston. Now, how in the world without cell phones without Facebook, without Twitter, without internet, uh, how in the world did all those Minuteman groups know to line that road? How did they get word so fast and get into position so that by late that afternoon as the British come back through, they're there to waylay them? Well, they'd already been prepared. And that's my point. I've kind of given way more history maybe than I should have. But the point is they were prepared. So they had committees of safety, committees of correspondence. These guys had been working on this for months. They didn't just out of, the, out of the blue meet together and say, hey, let's just declare our independence. We're rebels anyway, and, you know, we just want to fight the British. Uh, you know, John MacArthur used to say that, um, and he's changed his tune now, but he used to say, you know, Americans decided they were going to shoot some Englishmen. Well, that's not what they decided. And, and that wasn't what, what motivated them at all. They had, they had done everything they knew how to do to prevent all of this. And they list that in the declaration, which most of us don't even read, those grievances that they list. Jefferson is trying to make the case, we've done everything we know how to do. So what we need to be doing is preparing. And I don't know how to do that, to be honest with you. Paul and I have been crying out for years. It's got to kind of be organized through some kind of entity that's large enough that meets regularly, that has places where people can get together and talk. Does anybody have any idea what I'm, what I'm talking about there? Is there any organization that exists that has a place to meet, they meet regularly, and they meet in large groups and have some leadership structure? Other than Starbucks, somebody just yelled that out. How about the church? And see, that's why the British then eventually threw a Tory named Peter Oliver, who was a justice in Massachusetts. So he's a judge. The courts have always been messed up. The judges have always been on the wrong side of things. Uh, but that's why they labeled the... Uh, the preachers, the black regiment. Now, we today call them the black-robed regiment, so people will know what we're talking about because you say black regiment, and everybody says, oh, so you're a racist. Well, it has nothing to do with racism. It had to do with the color of the robes that the preachers wore when they preached. But, but that's why they called them that. They were trying to, to, to discredit them. That, that was the whole, the, they fought propaganda wars just like we do. 
But those guys were organized and they were ready. And so what I would say to you is this is time, this, this, this is the time to begin to network with people and to begin to do an inventory of your own life and your own heart and what are you willing to do and what are you not willing to do. You know, we've always taught in the church, at least those of us that, that try to deal with issues that are somewhat difficult, We've always told young people who are dating that if you don't decide what you're going to do when you're alone, it's too late when you're backseat of the car. You better know before then what you're going to do or you are going to compromise yourself sexually. It's just the way it is. Your emotions are going to run away with you. You better know ahead of time what you're going to do. Well, we're in the same place in, in a different context. You know, everybody's always talking about, well, I'd do this and I'd do that, but they won't take a stand for anything. Well, I can tell you, just like I've said for years, people say, well, I'd die for Jesus. If you won't live for Jesus, you won't die for Jesus when the time comes. And so for those of us who don't vote or we, we don't vote regularly, we don't educate ourselves, I'm telling you, when the fight comes, we won't fight either, whatever that fight is. You're going to see some things that are going to begin to happen pretty quickly after January the 20th. One of the things that I think you're going to see, I don't have a crystal ball, and even if I did, my batteries are out, so I, I can't tell the future. But one of the things that I'll tell you that I think you're going to see real fast, the Equality Act has already passed the House. It's sitting there waiting for the Senate to approve it. You say, well, that's just another act. Yeah, but this act is, is pretty... Uh, damaging because the Equality Act will add sexual orientation to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So what that's going to do is that's going to put everybody in a position where if, they've, if they are not willing to violate their conscience and hire someone who lives a lifestyle that just compromises their own convictions, they're going to be fined, sued, or jailed. And you know what they will do. They will go after the organizations just like they have with photographers and, and bakers and other groups. They will go after the people who won't hire a lesbian couple uh, to be a minister at a church or some preacher that won't do a homosexual wedding. And even if they can't get them legally, they'll sue them into oblivion. So we better start to prepare for things like that because I promise you that's going to happen. They're also going to want to make an example out of a few people. So they're going to be looking. It may not be me or Paul, but they're going to be looking for guys like Paul and me to make an example out of to scare everybody else. And these scaredy cat pastors that we have today, it won't take but one or two guys to really get in trouble with these leftists. And those guys will just say, whatever you want, that's what we'll do. Well, I know, but, but, but they will completely capitulate. If you think that they're going to stand up and say, well, well that's too far, now we're going to fight, they will not. I'm just warning you. So we better begin to kind of think through what are we willing to do, what are we willing not to do. You need to get very active in different groups, and I don't necessarily know all the groups that you need to become active in, but groups like OPAC, groups like uh, Oklahoma Second Amendment Association, all of these groups you need to become active in. That, that's one of the only ways we're going to be able to organize. 
So just be praying, be thinking, keep your, your ears on. Don't believe everything you hear on the internet. Uh, we all hope that there is a massive sting operation that's going to uh, unwind here in the next few days. We all hope that when they uh, went into the Capitol last Wednesday that they were able to get some laptops. And there's all this information on these laptops and they downloaded it all and now they're going to blow it all out there into the press. I, I, I doubt that, just to be honest with you, but man, we all hope that's true. But what do we do if it's not? What do we do if January the 20th, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are inaugurated and then that Congress goes into session and they do what I think they're going to do? Also be aware of this. A voluntary buyback of weapons never stays voluntary. And this business, well, I'm just going to bury my guns out there in the pasture and they're not going to know I've got them. Okay, so let's say that you could do that. Let's just say that you could get a, a watertight container and, and you could bury your guns and they're still going to be usable later. How many people you think is going to do that? So how many people will be left owning guns? We've already seen in other countries that when they start this buyback, a lot of people go ahead and cave. Well, I'm just going to turn in my registered guns, but I've got guns that aren't registered. Well, well, how many people will be left owning guns and how many guns will be left if everybody goes ahead and turns in their registered guns? Like that's okay and that's not unconstitutional. See, the, these, little, these little capitulations that we're willing to make only bait us more and draw us closer into having the hook in our jaws. It's like the pastor out in California that was fined $112,000. I think it was his church that was fined for meeting indoors. He finally capitulated and started outdoor meetings. Now, in Southern California, you can do that. The weather will allow that. But you know how he came to the conclusion? And now, he had stood tough, and people were supporting him and encouraging. You know what he said caused him to capitulate and start meeting outside? God told him to. God told him it was okay, he had made his point, now go ahead and surrender. Those aren't the words that he used, but that's what he said. Now you're telling me that God told him to do that. No, the pressure got to him, and I can understand that. So let's say that some Sunday morning I'm up here preaching or teaching, or Paul's up here preaching or teaching, and they bust through that door right there, and they're not shooting at us. It's a bunch of authorities, and they come in here and they arrest me. What are you going to do? Or they arrest Paul and me. What are you going to do? Just kind of get up and go home? At Trinity, when I used to pastor, while they still stood for something, you know what some of the men in the church were going to do? They'd already decided who it was going to be. The next man would step up to the podium and try to pick up where I left off. And if they arrested him, the next guy was ready and he'd come right up. You remember the old movie Spartacus? I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. They didn't know who Spartacus was because everybody was Spartacus. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be arrested? Are you willing to be ruined, sued into oblivion? See, that's what we've got to decide. Now, I hope that never comes. I'm telling you, I hope it never comes. I hope somehow we come up with a better solution than that. But it just may be foisted upon us. We've already been willing to destroy our businesses. 
Now, not so much here in Oklahoma, but I'm telling you, there are people in places like New York and out in California, their businesses have been bankrupted. How many business owners have you seen stand up and say, well, I'm not closing? Not too many. Yeah, we're just, we're just folding up like crazy. So my, my, my warning to us is, and it's, the warning is to me as much as it is to anybody else, we better decide, like I've said with those young people in the back seat of the car, we better decide before they come for the guns what we're willing to do and what we're not willing to do. Now, the, the time is not to start loading our guns and shooting people. I, like I told you, that, that I, I talked to that um, militia group, if you want to call them that, because that wasn't the right move or the right time. But they keep ratcheting up the heat, and you may find yourself in a position where you're going to have to decide between your principles and your safety. It could get tough. It could get really, really Tough. Look how quick the Washington conservatives have been to somehow disavow their connection with Trump. Even Cruz, even Ted Cruz at the end of the week. Now, he didn't completely disavow Trump, but he went on the air and he said, you know, I'm telling you, Trump, he, he's too radical. And all. I mean, our stalwart conservative, I mean, look at Jim Inhofe. And I want, I want to comment on that. Tom Cotton in Arkansas. I've been a huge fan of Tom Cotton. Not right now. Now I want you to think about this on that. And then I'm, we'll get into the lesson. I'm sorry I'm, I'm taking so much time. But um, this business of Inhofe saying that it would be unconstitutional to object to the electors. Well then why have a certification? I mean, if the only constitutional position is to approve, then isn't that step unnecessary? I mean, if you can't disapprove, then does your approval mean anything? I mean, if you can't stand up and say, I object, then the certification is a ruse. It's a joke. Why would the framers have put that step in there if you can't do anything but approve? That's the only constitutional move you have. And to be honest with you, I don't care if it's constitutional. Now, let me clarify what that means. I don't mean that I, I, I don't believe in the law and we shouldn't keep the law. But friends, there are principles that overarch the Constitution. And you'll find those in the Declaration of Independence. There are many things considered constitutional now that I believe are so profane and immoral that we ought to be screaming out to high heaven. For instance, it's constitutional to murder a preborn child. You really believe that's constitutional? It's constitutional to redefine marriage to be anything you want it to be. Is that really constitutional? So remember, friends, the Constitution is not our Bible, the Bible is the Bible. <laughs> And you better know the principles in that Declaration of Independence because I believe the Constitution has been so stretched and twisted and deformed that it, they can make anything they want to be. I mean, look at John Roberts with Obamacare. He completely rewrote their argument for them. They've been arguing all along, it's not a tax, it's a penalty. And then in his decision, he said, it's not a penalty, it's a tax. Because that's the only way that he thought he could get it into the enumerated powers in Article uh, 1, Section 8. 
where, where the, the, the Congress is given the power to tax. Well, not in any way they want. Because they could for, force you to buy a Prius and call it a tax. So there's got to be a point where we don't buy their nonsense. Now, I don't know about Inhofe. I, I don't know him all that well. I've been in his office. I've met him. I've always had a lot of respect for him. Not so much today. I mean, we just, you know. So anyway, don't, don't be fooled. Don't panic. At the same time, I think we better start thinking, what are we willing to do? What are we not willing to do? Because I think we're going to have some of those decisions forced on us. I, I, re- I really, really do. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm talking to attorneys right now trying to figure out how to protect Pam so if they arrest me or sue me, they can't put her on the street. Now, I never would have thought I'd be facing a time like that. I'm trying to figure out how to div- divest myself of assets to make her the sole owner of the assets so if they come after me, she's not left without a house to live in. Now, I realize if the government wants it, they can take it anyway. I get that. But I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Now, that's a crazy world you're living in when you're thinking like that. And don't think it can't happen, and don't think it can't happen fast. I would imagine as Dietrich Bonhoeffer walked up the steps of that gallows, he figured, how in the world did we get here? He's a Lutheran preacher. So it can happen. And don't think because we're Christians, it can't happen to us. He's a Lutheran preacher. His book, Life Together, which is a discipleship book, is still used around the world as a discipleship small group instruction manual. He was a committed Christian, but he participated in the attempts to assassinate Hitler. That's why he was arrested, primarily. And he was hanged two weeks before the Allies liberated that prison. Now you say, well, God could have saved him. Well, of course God could have. God knew that in two weeks that camp was going to be liberated. Why didn't God just delay the execution for two weeks and a day? But he didn't. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer is basically martyred. Or Tyndale, why, why, why was he martyred? Or Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, who was burned alive at, in his old age and said, these many years I've trusted him, how could I deny him now? And as the story goes, as they're burning the wood around him to burn him alive, he's singing. And they start throwing things at him And he starts bleeding into the flames. Starts extinguishing some of the fire that's going to burn him. God could have saved him from that. God could have saved Stephen from the stoning that he received. You've heard me preach that sermon. I don't know why Peter got 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost. And not long afterwards, Stephen got 3,000 stones. I don't know why it works the way it works. God is sovereign. And someday we'll understand. But I can tell you this, this is a timely study. Because <laughs> I believe the powers of darkness are fighting everything that is true as hard as they ever have. And we, we better understand our enemy. So last week we started talking about Lucifer. One of the things I wanted to mention that I didn't last week is that uh, in Isaiah 14, which is what we were talking about, 
Lucifer, son of the morning, uh, some believe that his name literally means light bearer. Light bearer, that's where son of the morning comes from. Morning, the light begins to shine, the sun begins to rise, and so Lucifer is light bearer. Now, how crazy is it that the light bearer, who was probably the commander of what I'd call the honor guard around God's throne, is the one who leads the rebellion against God? The very light bearer is the one who becomes the prince of darkness. So we talked about how it was his pride that got him into trouble. Uh, Isaiah 14 says he's going to be brought down to hell. And then everybody is going to know how small he is. Now I want to insert here a couple of verses that we didn't talk about last week. That I think are very important to us individually. And especially anybody who's in a place of leadership. Now we all... Uh, have a role to play in God's kingdom, but some of us are placed in positions of leadership. And when we're placed in positions of leadership, uh, I heard a message yesterday on the book of Nehemiah that was probably one of the best messages I've ever heard on Nehemiah. It was incredible. And one of the things that this preacher was saying is that within every position of authority, there is a great vulnerability to do bad with that power and he believes that's one of the reasons why when Moses was at the burning bush and God said what's in your hand and Moses said a staff and he said well throw it down and the staff became what a snake now the staff was a symbol of the authority that God had given Moses right it's with that staff that God works all these tremendous miracles now I don't know all the reasons but I've always struggled with why did the staff become a serpent And this preacher said he believes one of the reasons why is Moses needed to know that within every staff there is a serpent. Now, I can believe that with the church staff because I've dealt with some of them, but that's that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about within every position of authority there's a serpent. You better know that. And then he told Moses put his hand, you remember, inside his cloak, and he pulls it out and it's leprous. And then, of course, God says, put it back in, and it's healed. Now, of course, in all of this, God is showing Moses that these are miracles and signs that when you do these, people are not going to be able to explain them, and they're going to have to say, well, this is God. But why those signs? And he said, I believe one of the reasons why the leprosy sign was given is because within every heart, there is corruption. Even with the believer. And we have to be very careful And remember that within our staff, there's a serpent. Within our heart, there's leprosy. And friends, I have seen many Christian leaders who have forgotten that and their staff became a snake. I hear people all the time talking about what we would call in our world Christian celebrities, if there is such a thing, but Christian celebrities. Well, I've met a bunch of the Christian celebrities I'll be honest with you, I'm not all that impressed. I'm really not. In fact, sometimes I'm depressed. Some of the most arrogant people I've ever known were in positions of leadership in the church. Pastors are some of the most arrogant men you'll ever be around. You go to pastor's conferences, and it's obvious who the big wigs are. Because they show it in every way from their walk to their talk 
to their dress. They know everything. They've accomplished everything. If you don't have what they have, you're worthless or you're certainly beneath them. I've only been to one conference of preachers where when they came to our table, I could not tell you who the large church pastors were and who the small church pastors were. Couldn't tell. Pam and I spoke at a pastor's conference for the Assembly of God pastors of this state of Oklahoma. They meet up at Branson every year, and we did the black robe up there, and they just, they mobbed our table when it was over. And for the life of me, I couldn't tell who the hot shots were and who the no shots were. Of course, there aren't any of those in God's kingdom. And there's a warning here about pride. So first of all, Paul says that you should not place anybody in the position of what we call pastor or bishop, just say church leader, that is a novice. But a person can be a novice and actually have been a Christian a long time, I've discovered. What he's talking about here is spiritually immature. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So Paul here is underlining Lucifer's problem. It was pride. Now this is why I believe then in Proverbs chapter 6, when God lists the six things he hates, and if you add a seventh to the list, it becomes an abomination. What is the first thing he mentions out of the six things that he hates? A proud look. Now I've often wondered, why does God place such an, an importance on this, this sin of pride. And, and I believe it's because of all things, of course, pride is self-importance. I don't need God. I'm my own person. I've pulled myself up by my own bootstrap. I mean, all of that's true. But I think there's something more to that. And here's what I think. I think pride is so dangerous to all of us because it blinds us to every other weakness we have. Pride blinds me to every other sin in my life. I mean, if you look at anyone who is fighting for perversion, typically it's because they've become blinded to that, the fact that it's a perversion. That it's, that it's immoral. Why is that? Pride. I'm right. And you ought, to, you ought to admit that I'm right. And you ought to embrace my position as right like I do. Well, that's, that's pride. A proud look. The unwillingness to admit that I could be wrong. That I might not have every answer. Pastors are incredibly vulnerable to this because they are asked to have answers. They are asked to have wisdom. They are expected to be able to stand and have answers for people. But if pastors are not careful, they'll find that in their staff there's a serpent. In their heart there's leprosy. And, and they'll begin to think, well, you know, I am somebody. Looky there, I've got the answer for their question. I have the answer for that question. I know how to do this. I know how to do that. You be quiet and listen to me. It can really get to you. But that can happen to any leader. If you're a leader in business, if you lead a class, if, if you're kind of a charismatic leader type individual, just don't ever forget there's a serpent in that staff. There's leprosy in your chest. 
We need to keep that in mind. So that was Lucifer's issue. Now, what we're doing here, if you remember, go back to the original outline. You may not have it with you today, but we're listing, we're listing proofs that Satan is a definite fact. He's real. He's a being. He's not an idea. He's not a philosophy. And so we've been looking at scriptures where the Bible obviously says he's a real deal. He, not it, he. You should never call the Holy Spirit it. The Holy Spirit's not it. All through scripture, he is a he. Well, Satan's not an it either. He is a he. Now, here's some more proof that Satan is a he. Jesus faced off with Satan at the very beginning of his ministry. Now, Jesus did not face off with some thought or some movement. Well, he did come into conflict with a whole lot of thoughts and movements. But when he's facing, out, facing up the devil, well, this is not some philosophy. This is a being. In fact, so much so that in Matthew 4, it goes beyond verse 3, obviously. But you have this debate that goes on between Satan now. He's no longer Lucifer. And by the way, just a a point that if I haven't made, you need to make anybody that ever asks you, why in the world would God make Satan? You answer them, he didn't. Lucifer made Satan. God made Lucifer. Remember, we've already seen Lucifer was perfect. He was beautiful till iniquity was found in him. It was Lucifer who by an act of his own pride sinned and became Satan or the devil. So God did not create the devil. He created Lucifer, the anointed cherub, who was perfect in all of his ways until iniquity was found in him. So it was Lucifer who made the devil. Just like God didn't make wicked people. They made themselves wicked. Now, they had a sin nature of Adam that they inherited, but they could turn to the Lord and be saved. So it's just kind of an important point that God didn't make the devil. So when people say, well, then why would God make a hell and put people in it? Well, to be honest with you, he didn't intend to put people in it. Jesus said hell was made for the devil and his angels. This ain't anything about people. But remember, the problem is with Adam's sin and the fall, and of course, God could foresee all of that. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Well, if you're against the Lord, then you must be for the devil. So therefore, even though you're not an angel, that's kind of the only place for you to go for eternity. But remember again, God didn't make hell for people or people for hell. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. So Jesus is led up uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And here's kind of an interesting thing. It's God who wants Jesus to be in this spot. See, we're always blaming everything on the devil. The devil did this, the devil did that. Here, it's not the devil. The Spirit of God orders this. Leads Jesus up so he could be tempted. Friends, sometimes it's God. Now, he's not trying to tempt you and get you to fall because James says that God doesn't do that to you. But God may very well orchestrate things so you're in the fix that you're in because he wants you to look to him and learn something and become an example of what a believer can do in that particular situation. And see the power of God demonstrated in you. So notice... Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. A lot of people misquote that. They say, well, he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. No, he wasn't. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Then the devil comes on him. Thank you, Miss Lucy. So the devil comes on him after a 40-day fast. 
Now you think about that. Jesus is probably pretty hungry. And what is the first thing that the devil does? Well, if you're the son of God, make yourself some bread. I mean, you've got to be hungry after this 40-day fast. And we don't have time to go into the rest of the temptation. So if Jesus is facing down the devil, then you know the devil's a real entity. Uh, and you'll, and, and, and I, I put this verse in here because um, we'd been talking about angels and notice that an angel appears to Jesus and strengthens him uh, in the garden. And if you read the temptation, the same thing happens to the Lord. After the devil leaves him, the Bible says that an angel came and, and comforted Jesus. Now you say, well, I thought Jesus was divine. Well, he is, but he's in a human body. And so the angel is strengthening Jesus at the human level. Let's look at one other thing. I know we're out of time, but I, 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 we need to go a little further here. Uh, Satan is a definite fact because the Bible also says that Michael fought the devil. We, we find this in, in many examples. Daniel chapter 10 verse 13. We find that uh, Michael, one of the chief princes, helped the angel that brings the answer to Daniel's prayer. And he had to fight through the demons to do it. Uh, it's not the only passage of scripture. In Jude 9, one of the strangest passages of scripture in all the Bible is where there is this dispute between the devil and Michael over the body of Moses. You remember God buries Moses on Mount Nebo. Moses is with the Lord, but his body is on Mount Nebo and uh, the devil wants Moses' body. And Michael has to call upon the Lord for strength uh, to be able to resist the devil so he can't abscound with the body of Moses. We don't know what in the world the devil wanted to do. But the point is, anybody who would say that the devil is just a thought or a movement or an idea just hadn't read scripture, let's, let's look at one other and then we'll go, I know we're late. Uh, Paul fought the devil. I mean, you, you, he, he's fighting the devil. First Thessalonians 2.18, he said, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Well, that's not a thought or a philosophy. Paul's talking here about the devil as a real entity. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. And then the last thing is, we know that the devil's real because he is our, uh, he is our adversary. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. In 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And friends, it's been really easy to be a Christian in America through my lifetime. It may get to where it's not so easy. And these passages of Scripture that we've talked about, the devil's our adversary and we better put on the whole armor of God, we may actually get to be able to do that. We should have been doing that all along. But this may become more real than we ever thought it was going to be, you know? So, to be honest with you, like my mentor used to say, it may be growing dark but for the Christian, it's growing gloriously dark because we have an opportunity to shine right now. So let's do it. Sorry for running over a little. Sorry for my pontificating earlier. Forgive me. Um, let's take a break. We'll have service here in a little while. Hang on to that outline. I apologize. It's two weeks in a row. I didn't get to it. I've got to get to it because I'm through with the other one now. So I got, I got to get to it next week. So we will. All right. God bless you all.